0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're
1: stuck in a relationship quandary
0: This weekend, Donald Trump became the asshole he's always been again. This morning, as I sit down to record the top of this week's show, evidence of the racist asshole piece of shit the president has always been is on the cover of my New York Times. Trump tells freshman congresswomen to go back to the countries they came from. President Trump said on Sunday that a group of four minority congresswomen feuding with Speaker Nancy Pelosi should go back to the countries they came from rather than loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States how to run the government. Wrapped inside that insult, which was widely established as a racist trope, was a factually inaccurate claim. The New York Times continues, only one of the lawmakers was born outside the country. Wrapping a racist attack around a lie by screaming, go back to where you came from at three people who are from here and one person whose family immigrated here, you know, like every American family that isn't a Native American family, and like two of Donald Trump's three wives, you might be tempted to call that peak Trump. But if we've learned anything over the last three years, it's that worse is yet to come. Trump's tweets and the whole fucking Trump administration is like a giant Circle jerk in a frat house. Worse is always coming. And it's less peak Trump than it is Valley Trump, a disgusting new low. You could call it Mariana Trench Trump, but that makes it sound like you're talking about Donald Trump's future fourth wife. I, I would impact Trump's attacks on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was born in New York, Rashida Tlaib, who was born in Michigan, Ayanna Pressley, who was born in Ohio, and Ilhan Omar, who emigrated to this country from Sudan, And all of whom, by the way, were elected to Congress because their constituents wanted them to help run this country. And all of whom, unlike the president, were elected by majorities. But, you know, this broke over the weekend. And if you've been paying attention, and I think most of my listeners pay attention, you've experienced the outrage. You've already heard the president's remarks dissected and condemned. Well, condemned by everybody except people who have R's next to their names who continue to be as silent about the president's racist remarks as they are complicit in the president's racist racism. But I got to say, all of this coming from a man whose mother was an unskilled immigrant, a maid, and whose grandfather fled to the United States from Germany to avoid military service. Doesn't that sound familiar? And who didn't speak English when he got here. All of this coming from a man with four children who were born to immigrant mothers in the United States, just like three of the four congresswomen that he is attacking. Well, it had its intended effect. His racist tweets are designed to pit Americans against each other and fire up his racist base. But they also blew immigrant detention centers, our concentration camps, off the front pages. And that was the point. That was the goal. The tweets are meant to divide and distract us. But as Rachel Maddow says, don't just talk about what he tweets. Talk about what he does. And the most appalling thing he's doing is caging kids, and adults too, in the most appalling conditions, separating children from their parents. Nazis used boxcars to transport Jews to concentration camps, not enough room to lay down, and this was considered one of the big Nazi crimes, packing people into boxcars, not enough room to lay down, no toilets, roasting in the heat, freezing in the cold, nothing to drink, treated like animals. Looking at the pictures coming out of the Border Patrol detention facilities this weekend with Mike Pence touring, some people object to calling them concentration camps, but look at those pictures. If you don't want to call them concentration camps, maybe we should just start calling them chain-link boxcars. How do we sleep at night with this man in the White House and children in cages? You know, those four Congresswomen, they were feuding with Nancy Pelosi because they want to push back harder and do more to fight Trump. Tlaib, Congresswoman Tlaib famously said she wants to impeach the motherfucker, which is what I've wanted for a long time, which I think every decent American has wanted since he put his fucking disgusting short fingered hand on that Bible at his inauguration. It's time to impeach the motherfucker already. It's time to lock him up. I am like all decent Americans on the side of the four Congresswomen that Trump attacked. Not just in defending them from this vicious, bullshit, racist attack, but in agreeing with them that it is time, past time, to impeach the motherfucker. All right, coming up on today's show on both the Magnum and the Micro, we have delightful cartoonist Erica Moen in to share some summer sex toy recommendations to help all of us take our minds off briefly, the political nightmare that we are currently living through. And on the Magnum, the subscription edition of the Savage Love Cast that you can subscribe to at SavageLoveCast.com. Twice as long, more calls, more guests, no ads. We have more questions, more of everything. All that on today's show coming right up.
2: Dan, I have a relationship question for you. I am a progressive, bisexual, feminist, happily married, living on the East Coast. And my lovely, uber-conservative, evangelical Christian family who lives in the Midwest, I'm going to go see them. And my lovely sister-in-law wants to have a Bible study on our way there or a book reading, she said. She, She said, oh, let's have a book club. I was like, oh, I'd sure do a book club. Yes, let's read a book. Let's do a book. That sounds great. We'll come to find out with my sister in law and my other two um, uh, sisters. Turns out it's a Bible study about biblical womanhood, meaning that it's going to be a biblical study, a biblical study about how, like, you can't be a feminist. You need to submit and, like, do all this stuff and, like, wear makeup and dresses and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And I just want to know how I can buy it bow out of this gracefully without offending her because shit would hit the fans if I offended her, her ideals or attacked her Christianity. And I really just want to go there um, while I'm visiting my family and have a good time and not have to be paranoid about being attacked for who I am.
0: So your sister is organizing a little bit of Bible study and being an underhanded twat about it. We're going to have a little book club. We're all going to read A book, The Celestine Prophecy, The Towering Inferno. No, we're going to read the Bible and have a little conversation about biblical womanhood. So your sister is proselytizing. She is having a little book club, having a little Bible study while you're home with the express purpose of communicating to you and other women who fall short of her standard of biblical womanhood that there's something wrong with them and you. That whoever you are right now, whatever you believe right now, you're broken and damaged and deficient. And here is the standard that you are falling short of. And we're going to have a little conference. We're going to have a little talk about that. We're all going to sit around the living room and chat about, by implication, what's wrong with you. Be offended. That's offensive. You don't have to be intentionally rude. You don't have to lean into rudeness. You don't have to tell your sister to take her Bible and shove up her twat go fuck herself. But you can say to your sister, I am not interested in Bible study. I'm familiar with the Bible. I was raised in the same family that you were raised in. This is not a mystery. I've heard the good news of the risen Lord and I don't give a fuck. And so I will go see a movie. I will go for a walk. I will go for a run. I will go to the gym. I will sit in the kitchen and read the Celestine prophecy while you guys sit in the living room and yak your heads off about biblical womanhood, hold yourselves to the standard that you believe that you yourself should be held to. But I'm not signing up for this. I'm not nine years old. I can't be forced to go to Sunday school anymore. Love you. I want you to be the woman that you want to be. You have to allow me to be the woman I am. And if we're going to come to blows about that, if we're going to have a shit fit in a fight about that, that's on you. Because I'm not telling you that you can't have your Bible study. I'm just telling you, you can't force me to come to it. And if your sister shits her pants, she moved her bowels. She did that. And that is not on you. But this idea that when someone engages in a passive-aggressive act designed to scold us, about our identities, about who we are, about not being believers, about whatever else, that we have to twist ourselves into pretzels to avoid offending them when they're the ones who've done the offensive thing, that is bullshit. Push back against that. Don't fall for that. Have this fight. You may need to have this fight just this one time, and it may ruin this family get-together, but in the future, they'll know not to pull this shit on you. Because they'll be ruining future family get-togethers. They will know that that is a consequence of trying to manipulate you into a room to yell at you about being a feminist, about being bisexual, about whatever else you are that they disapprove of or they don't think jibes with a concept of womanhood cooked up by a bunch of nomads in a desert with stanky taints thousands of years ago. Fuck them. Fuck that. Speak up. Let them get angry. Because... What they're doing should make you angry.
3: Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old gay man, and I'm currently dating a 50-year-old. We've only been on a few dates so far. I have stayed the night at his place a few times before. I have dated an older man before. The longest relationship that I've ever had was with someone 16 years older than me. We started dating when I was 22, and... We're together about five years. The issue now is that I think that the guy I'm seeing now is kind of very quickly developing strong feelings for me. And I'm not the type of person to develop those strong feelings so early on. Now that I'm older, I'm starting to really think about things like if I get into a long-term relationship with someone am I going to outlive them for 20 years or is the sex going to dry up in 10 years when I am not ready for it too? So what should I do? Should I just keep going as is? Should I break up with him now?
0: You should break up with him now. He's falling for you. You know, he's falling for you. If you are certain that he isn't someone that you could see yourself with or, These aren't feelings you could ever reciprocate. You could never feel as strongly for him as he is apparently beginning to feel for you. It would be cruel to continue to date him, to continue to hang out with him. You're kind of hanging out with him or dating him or having sex with him or staying over under false pretenses. He is investing in this relationship and his expectation is that you are open to making a similar investment. If you know for a fact that that's not possible. You can't invest in him the way he's investing in you. You're not going to fall for him the way he's falling for you. The kind and decent thing to do is to end the relationship. The only reason though you're considering ending this relationship is because you're gaming this out 10 years or 20 years and predicting or expecting that when he's 60 and you're 40 that He will have erectile dysfunction and not be able to fuck you, and you guys won't have a sex life. There's a lot of sexually active 60-year-old guys out there in the world. That's not necessarily a a problem. Who knows? After 10, 15 years together, you may have an open relationship and maybe about a different kind of intimacy, and you guys have sex with other people, but you have a partnership and, and a love and a foundation that transcends merely a hard dick in your butt. But if that's not a relationship, if indeed he winds up, not being able to function sexually in 15 or 20 years, if that's not the kind of relationship that you would want to be in, yeah, you probably need to end this and end it now. And if you feel that way about older guys, please stop dating older guys. If every older guy that you meet and date, you think going to be impotent in 10 years and I'm looking for something long term, well, then you probably don't want to date older guys.
4: Not that older guys are all going to be impotent in 10 years or unable to get it up. Hello Dan, I was hoping you might be able to give me some advice. Um, I need to figure out a way to make amends. So in college, I was an editorial cartoonist for the student-ran bi-weekly university newspaper. Proposition 8 was in the news back then, and at the time, I was very close-minded about LGBTQ issues. I created maybe 3 cartoons or so that ended up getting approved by my editor and published which, looking back on now, I am so ashamed and so embarrassed to have my name next to. They were clumsy, mean-spirited, and terrible attempts at humor at the expense of queer people. At the time, the paper got a firestorm of angry letters and online comments in response to my cartoons. I was honestly totally in shock at the time at the strong public reaction, but it's part of what helped me begin to re-examine my beliefs and misconceptions, Since college, my understanding of queer and trans issues has definitely matured. I've come a long way. Today, I'd like to think of myself as an ally, at least I really want to be, but I can't stop thinking about my past, not only about these cartoons that were published, but also some of the things I may have said or done that might have been hurtful or sensitive. I've had a cousin, a roommate, and a couple of friends from school that have come out in the last few years, and I cringe to think that I may have made them feel bad about themselves in any way, or made them feel alienated. Um, I've contemplated writing a letter to the editor to my old college newspaper to apologize, but I really don't want people to then go back and try to find my cartoons in the archives and read them. I've also considered submitting new editorial cartoons with a better message, Um, what do you think I can do to make up for my, frankly, ignorant and mean-spirited political cartoons? Also, just in general, what would you recommend for people like myself who have had their hearts and minds opened in the last few years and may now feel guilty about the way they may have knowingly or unknowingly hurt queer people in the past?
0: You're what queer people want from bigoted straight people. We want you to listen. We want you to reconsider. We want you to come around. You listened, you said some stupid shit in those editorial cartoons, people screamed and yelled at you, and you took that in. And it took some time, but it reached you, and you've changed. Stop beating yourself up. You did what we asked you to do. You are evidence. You are proof of the success of queer people engaging with bigoted straight people rather than just... Writing them off. And, and, you know, some of that engagement probably sounded like people writing you off. People probably wrote in angry, condemned you. But you were mature and thoughtful enough, even in your ignorance at that time, not to wall that shit out, not to block it, but to listen and sit with it and reconsider. So, what do you do with the guilt? You be a good and decent straight person and a good ally going forward. If you want to expunge some of the guilt, and I think that this is something you should do, people who knew you then, people you knew who were closeted in college, who may have seen the cartoons and been hurt by them, and it may have taken them longer to come out, at least to you, perhaps to others as a result of them, the result of those kinds of attitudes and the fear that other people in their lives and in their orbits, even if they hadn't made those kind of political cartoons, even if they hadn't made those kind of statements, might harbor them. Harbor those attitudes, believe those same things. Yeah, to reach out to those people, to send them a letter and to apologize and just say, you know, this is going a long way back and in a small way, this is kind of making it about me and it's not about me, it's about you. I just, I said and did these things at this time that I know now were ignorant and hateful and, and misinformed and and potentially harmful to queer people, particularly queer closeted people. And you were a queer closeted person at that time who saw them. And I apologize if you saw this and were harmed by it. I know that you don't want the cartoons to pop up. I think if you really want to go that extra mile, writing a piece for your college newspaper now about those cartoons then and addressing, not the kid you were then, but addressing the kids at that school now and telling the homophobes Telling the transphobes, telling the biphobes, telling the queerphobes in college right now that they should be careful about what they do and say publicly. They should be careful about the positions they take on queer people because if they don't know and they say and do ignorant and hurtful things, they may come to regret it as you have come to regret it. And your example could keep some bigoted fucking shitty college boy's mouth shut while he thinks about it. As opposed to what you did, which was to go off in these editorial cartoons to run your mouth and do harm and think about it. You thought about it after you did the harm. You could reach somebody who may be thinking these same things you were thinking and hasn't given it a lot of thought. And your example could result in that person thinking before they speak and maybe getting a little bit more of information about queer people. And challenging without having to be publicly challenged their own biases and misconceptions or bigotries. You could do a lot of good, but you know what? All of that's extra credit. Writing those letters, reaching out to people privately, writing for your student newspaper, reaching out to them, all of that is extra credit. What you've already done by coming around, by being a better person, by being the ally now that queer people need, even if you weren't always the ally queer people needed, that's enough.
5: Hey Dan, um I'm calling because I just feel like such a dummy. Oh my god. I have a sweet nephew who is in his early 20s and he is my stepbrother's son and I don't see him that much and I totally forgot when I was talking on the phone with my dad that my dad didn't know that he was gay and I outed him to my dad. And my dad is totally cool with it, but it was kind of a shock and I felt so bad. I felt like I had kind of violated something, but I know for a fact from his mom that he is not closeted. He just has not come out to his grandparents. So I'm just wondering like what I should do or what I shouldn't do, or I don't know. I feel like compelled to maybe call his mom and talk to her about it and see, I don't know, it just feels like too involved. It's kind of like I've already overstepped my bounds. My dad is totally willing to keep his mouth shut until, you know, my nephew comes out to him on his own. But I just feel like, oh, I just feel like I created a terrible situation. So anyway, do you have any advice for me in this situation?
0: You should feel bad, but you shouldn't feel too terrible. We're talking about, An adult in his early 20s, we're not talking about a 13-year-old. We're talking about a grandparent who has no power or authority over this person. If you outed him at 15 or 14 to homophobic or potentially homophobic parents, that would be a huge problem. But when somebody is out to most of the people in their life, the people that they're out to can lose track of who they're not out to. And it's kind of a burden. There was a moment when I was out to my mom but not my dad, out to one of my siblings but not my other two siblings, out to some of my aunts but not all of my aunts and none of my uncles when my mother in frustration told me that I couldn't keep doing this, that I wasn't really coming out to anybody. I was just pulling people into the closet with me and it was getting confusing and difficult for them to edit themselves at all times around everybody else. My mother got really upset. I'm sure I've told this story before. My mother got really upset. I was in a play. My character got married. It was a comedy. My mother was bawling her eyes out because me being gay meant I would never get married. And my dad was like, what is wrong? And my mother couldn't tell him because I wasn't out. And I swore her to secrecy not to tell my dad. And that was that moment where my mother's just like, you didn't come out to me. You yanked me into the closet with you. And it sucks. You're right. Sucks to be closeted. Please tell your father. A guy in his early 20s, who's out to his aunts and out to his parents and out to siblings and everybody else, but not out to grandma and grandpa, arguably has pulled a whole bunch of people into the closet with him and is asking all of you to do two things at once, to regard his sexuality as no big deal and as something that you love and accept and embrace and that isn't stigmatized and to keep your mouth shut at all time about it and be careful who you mention it in front of. And those things are kind of in conflict. So you screwed up. Call your nephew. Look, I screwed up. I forgot that you weren't out to grandpa and I, it just came out of my mouth talking about you as a a neutral and simple fact about you, which is of course what it is. And I'm sorry. Your nephew may be upset. Your nephew may be grateful. I'm from a huge family, reached a tipping point where I didn't have to tell everybody because I let it be known that I was coming out to everybody and then word spread. And this was many, many, many years ago and it was a little bit more dangerous to be an out gay teenager at that time than it is now. And I was grateful that eventually I had some of the work of coming out taken off my shoulders because it wasn't that I had to tell everybody, it reached a point where everybody knew whether I'd personally told them or not. And I experienced that when it came to, you know, my 4,000 aunts and uncles as kind of a relief. Hopefully your nephew will feel the same way. If he doesn't and he's angry, hopefully he'll get over it in time.
6: Hi, Dan. Late 30s, this had male here in a poly relationship located in a small town in a blue state. Uh, my question is how to handle family dynamics in a more or less egalitarian polyamorous situation. So I've been with my wife for 13 years and we have an eight year old together. Uh, my girlfriend and I have been together for only one uh, no kids, no desire or potential for it. We're kitchen table. My wife and girlfriend get along splendidly, and I view them as relationship equals, and that both our life partners. Uh, we have plans to move my girlfriend in with us as soon as she finds a job in her field near us, and we're going to have a commitment ceremony later this year as well. So we all consider ourselves one big family most of the time. See, I and my girlfriend are more or less open about being poly, but my wife is not. Uh, she comes from a religious and moderately conservative family. She's not likely to be disowned if she comes out, but in a way that might be easier since instead I'd expect her just instead hear no end of passive aggressiveness and judgment. But I don't think it would be fair of me to force my wife to become open against her will. But at the same time, my girlfriend doesn't want to feel like daddy's little side piece hidden away whenever the in-laws are in town. So obviously this is going to come to a head eventually once she moves in with us. I guess what can we do in the meantime? How do we navigate this?
0: I had one quick follow-up question for you. Uh, one thing I needed to know before I could weigh in. How often do your wife's in-laws, or pardon me, your wife's parents, your in-laws, come to town?
6: Uh, they live about three hours away. So probably on average, maybe once every two months. But we are in the process of buying a house. So it will be much more frequent in the immediate future.
7: You are moving across
0: the street or you are moving closer?
6: Uh, it's, uh, no, it's uh, about two or three blocks away. But we're, we're renting now when we bought a house.
0: Oh, oh, you're moving to a new yeah, house three blocks away. You're not moving to a house three blocks away from her yeah. parents.
6: No, no, no. Well, yeah, we're staying here, yeah.
0: All right. So the thing you said that made my eyebrows rise up and meet my hair <laughs> was that you worry things will come to a head after the girlfriend moves in. And that's the wrong approach. You guys need to get some clarity and all get on the same page before the girlfriend moves in. Okay. And this is price of admission territory. Someone's going to have to give. And it sounds like you and the girlfriend want the wife to give and come out to her parents about being poly and not just poly or not just open, but three people living under one roof, three adults, poly relationship, a kid in the house. Mm-hmm. And is your wife at all comfortable with that prospect? Does that fill her with anxiety? Does she wind up curled up in the fetal position on the floor when you address this subject? How would you characterize your wife's feelings about this?
6: I would characterize my wife's feelings as generally positive. Um, she and my girlfriend get along really well, um, and it's a you know it, it, it's a it's a good relationship. This has been a really good uh, step that we've. Okay, that's uh, not the question. We've gone down the and... question wasn't: Does okay, do your wife sorry. and your girlfriend get along?
0: <laughs> How does your wife react when you raise the subject of her having to tell her parents? Because your girlfriend doesn't want to feel like daddy's dirty little secret.
6: Yeah, I get that. Okay, um, so she, yes, I'd say there is some anxiety there, but it's hard to tell if the if what the what if it's caused by the um, by the situation with her parents or if it's because it's. We have, you know, we've been together for six months now. We were monogamous, monogamish for a good portion of our relationship. So there has been a lot of changes in a short period of time.
0: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What? Let's throw this conversation into reverse. You've been dating this woman for six months? Yes. And everybody gets along? And you've only been open for how long?
6: Well, we've been open for the majority of our. Uh, well, monogamish for the majority of our of our relationship together. Okay. We switched over to Polly about a year ago.
0: And this woman that you've been seeing for six months that you are preparing to move into your house with your wife and child, which I think is a mistake at six months. She doesn't okay. live where you live. She You talked about her having she's, to get a job to transfer to your area. Yeah, she's about an hour away. Okay, this all seems really premature to me. This is your first poly relationship. Um, it's this formal of a poly relationship, like the wife and the girlfriend. The first serious one, yes. Yeah. Okay, and how much time has your wife and girlfriend actually spent together? A few weekends. A good amount.
6: Um, no, a good amount. Uh, we've had a couple double dates with um, uh, with uh, my girlfriend's. Uh, former nesting partner. It's a little bit complicated on that side. It's always complicated um, on the but, poly yeah. side. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, they've spent good, uh, a good amount of time together. I'd say it's more than just a couple of weekends, but, you know. It...
0: All right. I think I think that you're forcing the issue. The whole I think the issue isn't, you know, when are you going to tell your parents? I think the issue that you two need to address is, are we rushing into this? Okay. And is this too soon? And I, it, it, I, from just what you've shared with me, it doesn't sound like you and your wife are communicating about this at the level that poly people need to be able to communicate to have a poly relationship, particularly if there's more than, you know, two partners under one roof. And I'm concerned that there's mm-hmm. a child in the mix here. Uh And this isn't a concern just for poly people. And I know people in poly relationships with children and it works out great and fine. And there are studies that show that kids who grew up in poly households are just as healthy and happy as kids who grew up in mono households. Not an issue. But when you ask kids to Mm -hmm. form kind of child parent-ish bonds with new adults, you really want to make sure that adult is going to be a presence in that kid's life for a while so that that kid doesn't feel dumped if the relationship goes south and they don't see that adult anymore. And six months and just a few, you know, maybe a couple of weeks total together, the three of you hanging out. Mm -hmm. It's too soon to ask your kid to bond with this woman in this role under the same roof any more than it's Mm -hmm. just as it's too soon to ask your wife to face up to coming out to her parents for this woman that you guys, I'm sorry, barely know. At six months. And I say this is someone who's been in a relationship for a long ass time. You barely know someone at six months. Right. It's too soon to move in. It's too soon to get married. It's too soon to have kids. It's too soon to ask a new boyfriend or girlfriend to, to meet and bond with your kid from a previous or ongoing relationship. It seems a little rushed. You guys seem like you're out over your skis and the parents aren't the issue here. And I understand the desire like mm-hmm. everybody you're in that you're still in the NRE stage of the relationship. And when you're in that new like crazy love, happy hormones dancing around in your bodies like you, you want, you know, you imagine this future together and you want it so bad that sometimes you engineer it a little too quickly. And you can have that future together if you're patient. Invariably, when you engineer that future together in a rush, when you force that, it imperils that future, that imagined future. So it's a fine thing to have that lodestar, like to look down the road and see all of us living together happily as a polytriad under one roof, co-parenting together, everyone out. Wouldn't that be lovely in another year and a half? I think you should slow your roll. I really do. I think – and it doesn't sound like your your girlfriend is in a u-haul truck on her way you said she's looking for a job to transfer oh, no, you no. closer so it is in right. the future a bit and while you're waiting to maybe to engineer that future we're all under the same roof and you're a poly household you can have an ongoing conversation with your wife about coming out to her parents and i've you know i just recently yeah. advised somebody in a, in a poly relationship that they have hidden from their conservative religious parents to come out to their parents and that their parents mm-hmm. weren't an idiots and probably knew and they came out to their conservative religious parents and they were good and fine about it and accepting. So I, I know that that's a thing that can happen and I'm, I i do not think you should have to cower in the closet for the rest of your poly lives because mm-hmm. your parents are mildly conservative and mildly religious. But you want, when you do come out to your parents for them to know that you guys have good judgment. And if you're coming out to them as poly, cause somebody you've known, for less than a year is moving in with you guys. Not only do they have the poly thing to freak out about, they also have the, well, that's not a smart move thing to freak out about her. And they will attach that to the poly thing.
6: Okay. So, um, part of the reason, so yeah, we're not looking to immediately, um, uh, push the button and move forward. I, I mean, that is definitely a, a, a goal that i that I have. And yeah, we are still in the NRE stage. We're still head over heels in love with her. And uh, I'm still head over heels in love with her. And we're, but that is a direction we do want to go. I'm, I'm I understand slow the roll, um, but being open is something that is important to me, just as uh, on a principle standpoint. And mm-hmm. that's some that's something that outside of this context that I've talked with my wife uh, about before as well. Just visibility is good. We're, I mean, we're we're pretty privileged. People, so, we're kind of the people that I would think should be open if we're able to be open, I guess. That's that's another thing that's laying, that's um, laying out my mind on this. Right.
0: And it is important that more people in non traditional relationships are out about it so that the right. stigma, the shame, the prejudice uh, goes away. That's how gays and lesbians, mm-hmm. and bi and trans people are, have managed to change the world to an extent and are continuing, hopefully, to change the world. For ourselves by being out. Mm -hmm. And it's really important, I think, particularly for opposite sex poly people to be out because usually gay couples who are non monogamous are out about it, and straight people don't think they know anybody who's non monogamous because the straight people that they know who are non monogamous haven't told them. And so I think it's really important that poly people be out, but you have to proceed in a slow and deliberate way, particularly when there are kids involved. And you have to balance Mm -hmm. what your wife wants against what your girlfriend wants. Your wife, I presume, of Mm -hmm. 13 years needs to feel like she's being prioritized at this moment. When your girlfriend is, you're talking about moving your girlfriend into your home. Your wife is going to want to feel like her feelings and her comfort matters to you. And a Mm -hmm. good way to demonstrate that to your wife is how you handle this conversation about how or when. You're going to come out to everyone in your lives about your relationship structure, about your polyamorous Mm -hmm. relationship. And it may be that she needs more time, you know, and some people do it where the parents meet the girlfriend or the boyfriend without knowing they're the girlfriend or the boyfriend. This is our roommate. And that charade goes on for a little Mm -hmm. while. And that is not always a bad strategy. Because telling your parents, come to the house, we're polyamorous, meet our new poly partner who moved in with us, your parents might freak out and say, no, they have no desire to meet this person. If they meet this person and they believe that (laughs) they're a roommate and they get to know this person and like this person, well, then when you tell them who this person is in your life, when you come out to them, they have to weigh their feelings, assumptions, prejudices about polyamory or open relationship against this very lovely person they've gotten to know. And that could be a successful strategy for prying a parent's brain open. And it might buy your wife a little bit more time for her to become comfortable with the prospect. just means your girlfriend has to be okay with not being a dirty little secret, not being hidden away. Just those couple of days every few months that your wife's parents drop by being a little discreet. I assume you guys don't all hang on each other. <laughs> in the kitchen. Oh no, no. <laughs> in front of a kid particularly, you know, kids don't want to see nope. their nope. monogamous opposite sex mom and dad hanging on each other in the kitchen. And so uh, you know, you probably move around each other while your kids around in a way that you can just replicate that way of moving around each other when mom and dad drop by. With the understanding the compromise being we're not going to come out to them right away. We're going to let them get to know us. And then come out Mm -hmm. and your girlfriend will have to eat some gotta be discreet time and your wife will have to come out to her parents eventually. In due time. In due time. Emphasis on in good time, in due time. And part of in good time, in due time means kicking, not a conversation about living together, like, oh, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? (laughs) <laughs> to live together, right? <laughs> you guys can fantasize about that and talk about it, but I wouldn't take any steps in that direction for at least another six months or a year.
6: Understood. Good luck. All right. Thanks. Thanks for the, the back. Yeah. I'm thank
2: sure you. you. Bye. Hi, Dan. My name is Christy and I have a friend who's really struggling in the dating world because he wants monogamy, but with no commitment. Um, is this even a thing He basically just wants to have a fuck buddy who only fucks him so he doesn't have to use condoms while he's on the side searching for the love of his life. Um, I've told him this isn't feasible and that he needs to just buck up and use condoms, but that's not the whole point. He's still searching for that loveless monogamy a year later. So me and my friends are just curious what you have to say. Is monogamy without commitment a thing?
0: There's a lot of loveless monogamy out there, but... Most of it, depressingly enough, goes on within committed relationships. There's a lot of loveless marriages. There's a lot of loveless long-term relationships and partnerships where the folks are monogamous and they're committed and they're married or they live together and no one's breaking up with anybody and no one's going anywhere, but there ain't a lot of love there. There's a lot of masturbating inside or next to each other if there's any sex at all. But what your friend is seeking is unrealistic and and self-negating. He wants loveless monogamy, so he wants someone to commit to him to only having sex with him and no one else, so he doesn't have to use condoms, but he doesn't want to make a commitment, he says, because he wants to be able to search for the love of his life with whom he also won't have to use condoms presumably, while also this other person is fucking him and only him and is sworn To fuck him and only him so that he doesn't have to use condoms. Your friend is an idiot and he either has to reconcile himself to using condoms with randos or casuals or his fuck buddies who will be fucking other people too. Or he has to just have non-penetrative sex with the people that he's having loveless casual intercourse with who by definition won't have made a commitment to him and will owe him Nothing but honesty. We owe each other honesty, even in the context of a casual relationship, even in the context of an anonymous hookup, we owe each other honesty. But what he's asking or what he's seeking here is unrealistic. And it doesn't sound like he's having much luck finding it. The time he could be investing right now in finding someone he could make a loving commitment to, a loving monogamous commitment to, and then not have to use condoms. He's pouring it into first trying to line up this person, this imaginary person who will commit to fucking him and only him and no one else. So they don't have to use condoms. So he doesn't have to use a condom while he searches for the true love of his life. Yeah. That person does not exist. And your friend who does is an idiot. If he thinks that person exists.
8: Hi, Dan, I'm a 29 year old, cisgender man. As far as sexual orientation. Well, this is what I'm calling you about. I've always been attracted to women. I exclusively slept with and dated women until age 25. When I decided out of the blue that I wanted to see what it was like hooking up with a man, I found an objectively handsome guy on Grindr. When we met in person, what I found was that looking at him didn't really rouse me, and kissing just didn't feel right. I did discover, however, that I very much enjoy sucking cock. Through the past several years, when single and feeling horny, I've hooked up with several more men. I have not, however, found a single guy that I'm romantically or even sexually attracted to beyond what's hanging off the front of his body. Which brings me to labels. The thing is, I kind of want to call myself bisexual. A number of my friends, including my roommate, are queer, and I'd like to be able to be a part of that community, instead of just being a boring, hetero cis male. I think I could classify myself as bisexual in the sense that I enjoy sex with both genders, but I also feel like it would be an affront to the community, since I present as a hetero male and cannot see myself ever wanting to date a man. I'd like to think my friends would be accepting, but I'm afraid of coming off as a dispassionate jerk if I tell them I only really want the D. This fear has kept me more or less in the closet about my sexual proclivity. So I guess my question to you is, is occasionally sucking dick enough to get me the label of bisexual and thus passage into the queer community? I feel like I would need to be biromantic to be accepted and that being bisexual alone just won't cut it. What are your thoughts, Dan?
0: There's nothing wrong with being a cis hetero male. You are not, however a cis-hetero male. You are what we now call bisexual but heteroamorous. You are sexually attracted to and sometimes sexually active with both men and women, but you are only romantically attracted to women. Charles Blow, the New York Times columnist, has written about this. Other bisexual men are now writing about this and bisexual women. That bisexuality doesn't necessarily mean you are equally attracted sexually and romantically to people of both or all genders. It is valid as a bisexual To have not just sexual desires and sexual orientation and sexual preferences, but also to have a romantic preference, romantic orientation. There are a lot of people out there who are having sex with men and women who feel like they're not allowed to identify as bisexual, even though they're sexually active with men and women, because they're not romantically attracted to both equally. Well, that's bullshit. Robin Oaks, who's a bisexual activist, created a definition of bisexuality that is pretty popular and I think really nails it and totally covers you. Here's Oaks. I call myself bisexual because I acknowledge that I have in myself the potential to be attracted romantically and or sexually to people of more than one sex and or gender, not necessarily at the same time, not necessarily in the same way, and not necessarily to the same degree. That's you. You're bi. Welcome to the queer community, kiddo. And when you say you present as kind of masculine or cis-heteromale, what is it that you mean by that exactly? You're not presenting as very cis-heteromale when there is a dick in your mouth. I promise you. And there are lots of members of the queer community out there rattling around who might be perceived to be straight because they're masculine gay men or they're feminine straight women or they're bisexual and they're in committed opposite-sex relationships. And people will assume that they're straight because they have no other clues or markers coming at them that might indicate otherwise, and straight is always the default assumption. If being the kind of person or if moving through the world in a way where people are going to assume you're straight, where the default assumption is going to apply to you, disqualifies you from being queer or identifying as a part of the queer community, there are lots of fags and dykes out there who can't then identify by that logic, by that reasoning, by your argument as members of the queer community. That's bullshit. Let that go. You sleep with men. You sleep with women. You suck off men, but you suck face with women exclusively. You are bi to a degree, and you are a part of the queer community in whole.
9: Hi, Dan. So I'm pretty kinky, and I talk to these guys who sometimes um, want to be, like, basically forced to, like, be fucked by another guy um, or maybe, like, suck their cock. And so I'm wondering, like, are these guys actually gay? And, like, society is just telling them that, like, it's not okay to be gay and this is kind of, like, their way of living that, living out that secret life? Or, you know, is this, like, a whole other thing? Obviously, I mean, I don't think it's possible to say that they're, like, completely straight if you heard about the, this phenomenon read about it whatever let me know
0: i've definitely heard of this this kink even has a name forced by what's up with the guys into forced buy? well i think they're by but they want to be forced i think it's all right there in the name of the kink absolved of responsibility there are a lot of people out there who have sexual desires and sexual fetishes and and, and sexual kinks and are turned on by certain sexual scenarios where they are absolved of responsibility, where they are taken against their will, where this thing that they want to have happen to them, that they want to do, that they want to experience happens to them in this context where they're role playing because these guys are asking you to set this up for them. So they're setting it in motion. They are asking for it. But in the moment, they are able to pretend And suspend their disbelief that this isn't happening because it's what they wanted. This is happening because it's what you wanted. And they are only submitting to your will. Is that fucked up? Yeah, I guess that's fucked up. Is that rooted in homophobia? Sure, it's rooted in homophobia. But if the person isn't toxic about it, if the person isn't, you know, torn apart by self-loathing afterwards or lashing out at the people who set this thing up for him that he wanted to have happen afterwards – This is just the erotic imagination taking these powerful cultural forces and containing them and shrinking them and basically making it into play, making it into a fetish, making it into a kink, finding a way to slot it into this person's sex life in in such a way where they can have their terror and their hangups that they have eroticized and then have this kind of sexual expression and sexual play too. You shouldn't pathologize it so long as the guy isn't – racked with self-loathing and self-hatred and doesn't lash out at you about it before or afterwards so long as they can be conversant about what's actually going on here i am in forced by i would like to you know role play a scenario with you where you bring in some other guy and you tell him he gets to fuck me in the ass and i don't get to say no and of course this is a ravishment fantasy right? This is somebody role playing a quote unquote rape or ravishment fantasy, but he's in control of it. He's in charge of it. So long as he can talk about it in that way and talk about it in a way that sets you at ease. And he can acknowledge that this is his kink. This is his turn on. He's eroticized these fears and he's turned on by this kind of role play, but it is just that these are roles and this is play. This isn't rape. You aren't forcing him to do anything and he can take some responsibility for his kink, for his fetish. Not a problem. A guy who comes across as a psycho who gets in there and this was all set in motion because it's what he wanted. It's what he asked for. It was what he was seeking. And then before, during or after he angrily pins all the blame on you for what's happened, or what he's doing and can't converse about it in a sort of zooming out to, you know, the wide angle lens, 360 degree view of it. That's not a healthy form of sexual expression. That's not somebody that you should engage in this kink or this kind of role play with. But a guy who can own it, a guy who understands himself and what's going on here, yeah, not a problem. And you shouldn't be any more reluctant to play with a guy into this kind of role play, into forced by, than you would be to play with a guy into any other form of DSX. You want to look for people who are healthy. You want to look for people who understand consent and you want to look for people who take responsibility for their desires and what they're asking you to do with and for them. And somebody into force by is capable of taking responsibility for their desires as well. And somebody into force by is just as capable of taking responsibility for their desires as somebody into Dom sub or master slave role. Play. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk about summer sex toys with Erica Moen, the cartoonist half of the team behind the weekly comic. Oh joy. Sex toy, which she creates with her husband Matthew Nolan and a whole bunch of other guest artists and writers and thinkers, and they are the duo behind the new and very terrific book, Drawn to Sex: The Basics, which is a great and valuable read for the young people in your life and for anybody in your life. Hey, Erica, how are you?
10: I'm great. Thank you. For, thank you for that intro. That was really
0: lovely. <laughs> well, I guess I have to thank you. In full disclosure, here, you dedicated Drawn to Sex: The Basics to me. Yeah. Why would you do something like that?
10: Because it's your fault.
0: <laughs> well, no, wait a What? Explain. How is drawn to sex, the basics, my fault?
10: Because you got out there and started talking about sex in a fun, frank, mostly friendly way. And uh, that was obviously a direct influence on what I now do with my life and how I pay my mortgage.
0: Well, I think what you guys do is really important, and I think you've made a huge contribution to sex education, not just of young people, but of all sorts of people and and fully fucking grown people, Uh, and I'm such a huge fan. So when I opened the book, and it was a surprise, I didn't know it, the book arrived, and I opened it, and I saw that you dedicated it to me, and I about shit myself. So thank you.
10: Oh, you are so welcome, and thank you for everything you've done.
0: All right, let's talk sex toys. What do you got for us? What are your recommendations? What's the sex toy of the summer?
10: Okay, yeah. So I, I, I got the email saying recommend summer sex toys. And I was like, what is a summer sex toy as opposed to like a winter sex toy? And so I decided on something that would be like, wouldn't make you too hot and sweaty because the summer is already warm enough. So there's this Iroha Plus series by Tenga. And it is this set of three little clitoral vibrators. They all fit in about the, the palm of your hand, and they are beautiful. They're like little art pieces, and they are made of the softest silicone I have ever touched. They're it's like it's like synthetic rose petals almost, but really like like they're I don't want to say squishy because that doesn't do it justice. They're firm, squishy, uh, like a tongue. Um ish but more pleasant i think because like if you're just going to reach out and touch somebody's tongue like there'd be a bit of an ew factor but this is just <laughs> really indulgent luxurious soft plush silicone that is just I, you have to touch it you have to touch it to understand so how big is it um, If you
0: say this is a small sex toy that's just for your clit how, how tiny is that are you talking about a thimble size sex toy
10: no, I would say it's about the the size of your the palm of your hand um it, it would just fit perfectly and and they're each kind of uh, uh they they're kind of modeled to resemble not not a perfect likeness but to evoke the spirit of sushi uh they kind of have these <laughs> sushi cuts to them uh-huh. um and I like they're very artistic though so it's not like you look at it and you're like, oh that's a piece of novelty sushi it's more like you know when you order uh, just the raw salmon and it's that bright, vibrant, pinky red color and it kinda has that, that certain uh touch to it. Mm-hmm. And one of them is shaped like that. And then another one, I think it kinda looks like a cross between a clove of garlic and a humbow bun. And um and then the third one kind of kind of resembles it sort of resembles a little whale to me. It sort of like has this open mouth area and then this Swoop and a bit of a tail, and they're all very organic shapes. They're all very, they they look like they could be food items. Um, They're just, they're very beautiful. And, and like, as far as like, will this rock your world? Well, I mean, they're they're kind of basic vibrators, honestly. They've got three speeds, they have two pulse rhythms, um, which is where toys will have these pre programmed vibrational patterns. So they'll go like, so they each have two of those. They're like they're moderately strong, they're basically about as strong as a good bullet vibe, which you know, that can be enough. Um, they're not gonna knock your socks off, it's not like an innovation in vibrator technology or anything. They're just like good, basic, solid vibe strengths and patterns, and um, they they feel super nice,
0: something pleasant and light and buzzy for the summer, like uh, champagne rose. So what what is the sensation? Like, you can use it on your clit? Can you use it on the head of a dick? Can you use it on someone's nipples? Is it
10: Oh, yeah, totally. Versatile? Like, it's, it, it's it is external stimulation. I mean, and if you really tried, you could probably shove it in an orifice. But, I mean, don't shove it in your butt because it doesn't have a, a – what's that called? A flange? A,
0: it doesn't have a flared a, base.
10: A flared base. That's it. Yeah, it doesn't have a flared base. So don't put it in an orifice that doesn't have a natural cap on it. Um they're just not made for that though. So yeah, it's definitely external use and it's intended for clitoral use, I believe, but you could, of course, just stop you from putting it on the head of your dick or put it on your <laughs> nipples or wherever else you're sensitive.
0: And what do they run?
10: They are 140 bucks. Uh, so it's not the cheapest choice. Like if you just want a basic vibrator, you could go down to Bayland or wherever and get a, a $15 bullet vibe and you'll save tens of, Tens and tens of dollars. But if you want a really luxurious, indulgent, fancy designer bullet vibe, you can um, you can spend $140 and get one of the Iroha Plus
0: models. Because your clit is worth it. Where can people find them online? Are they in all the big online woman-owned sex-positive shops, or do you have to go somewhere specific?
10: Uh, I believe they're in all the big positive woman-owned queer plus a plus folk shops that you can think of. And uh, so yeah, you can find it at all those regular sex shops and you can also get it online at Tenga, T-E-N-G-A.co.uk.
0: Erica Mowen, the cartoonist half of the team behind the weekly comic. Oh, joy sex toy with her husband, Matthew Nolan. they are also the duo who brought out the terrific new book. And it's a terrific resource. And it's really hilarious. And it's dedicated to me drawn to sex, the basics, a great primer for anyone who's just getting started on sex or anybody who wants to um, brush up on sex, however sexually active they've been up to now. Erica, thank you so much for jumping on the phone.
10: Oh, thank you so much, it's always a pleasure.
11: Hi Dan, uh, I'm a 32 year old gay man. And I'm currently infatuated by a gorgeous guy around my age who has expressed his infatuation with me as well. We've known each other for several months, but have only in the past two months been hanging out constantly. It is extremely intense and passionate and he has on multiple occasions thrown out the love word, mostly when we are on shrooms or drunk, which I actually interpret as short-term infatuation. We really hit it off, even though we both prefer to bottom. I've been topping him mainly, which is not ideal, but it's fun to explore new sex, and I'm really satisfied by just holding him at night and just being around him in general. So I'm okay with that aspect, but I'm really concerned and feel like even though it will really break my heart temporarily that this isn't going to work out. He has a 70-year-old sugar daddy who basically owns his life and pays for everything, including housing. He has multiple boys around the country and is only in town a week a month. I don't mind him, but the power dynamic makes me super uncomfortable. And I feel like whenever the three of us are together, he gives daddy preference and intimacy, even though they aren't even boyfriends. I don't want to be around daddy and get kind of frustrated that he, you know, when he won't uh, let me pay for my own food, but I don't want to make ultimatums and I don't want to be a problem either. Ultimately he's helping someone that I care about. So who am I to get in the way of that? Also the boy I'm infatuated with recently told me in the heat of a passionate drunk moment that he loves me so much, but doesn't want to hurt me. So That's concerning. We have so much fun together and he really likes me, but I'm experiencing extreme emotional highs and extreme lows with the situation. My brain tells me to run, but my heart tells me to give it more time and see I'm struggling to process. And I don't even know how to start the conversation with him or what to do.
0: I think what's really going on here is that in the context of the kind of work that your boyfriend is doing, and that kind of work is sex work, You're having a hard time imagining what a future together with him might look like. You're also not talking with your boyfriend about what a future together for you two might look like right now. He is financially dependent on this 70 year old sugar daddy who is paying not just for his meals and not just for his time when he's in town that week, month, but supporting him financially paying for him to have a place to live and your boyfriend may feel some conflict. He's falling for you and maybe it's premature to call him your boyfriend. I don't know if you guys have used that term yet. He's falling for you, which means he's also fantasizing about or imagining a future together with you. And that's risky for him in a way that it's not as risky for you to contemplate that future together because running off with you and cutting off the sugar daddy means cutting himself off financially from this support that he is probably dependent on at this point. And so this is risky and this is dangerous. Risky for him to think about a future with you because it's going to really impact his income at this moment and how he supports himself. And risky for you to imagine a a future with him because what are you supposed to do? Are you going to be the person who pays his rent? Are you going to be his sugar boyfriend, his sugar buddy going forward? No, that's probably not a role that you would want to play. You don't want him to be with you because he shifts his financial dependence from his 70-year-old sugar daddy to you and then can't leave you in the same way he can't leave his sugar daddy at the moment. But I do think that you can have a conversation with your guy about what this means, about what the future looks like. He can't be this man's sugar baby forever. This man is 70 fucking years old. This man is going to drop dead at some point. And what then? What kind of hit is he going to take lifestyle-wise when he is no longer this man's sugar daddy because the man dies or the man moves on or they have a big fight and it's over. He won't easily be able to find another situation exactly like this one. And so what's he going to do then? How's he going to support himself financially? What sort of lifestyle downgrade is he going to experience when this relationship ends? And is he going to wait for it to end because the guy dies or the guy moves on? Or is this something that he is willing to end himself and take that hit and get different work or live more cheaply and in a different place? Or maybe live with you in the future if you guys work this out? Until you know these things, until you can have a conversation with this guy about what he's doing right now and what that means for not just his future but your shared future – if you guys are falling for each other you're both fantasizing about. You're not going to feel comfortable in this relationship and he is going to continue to feel racked by guilt because continuing to see you and develop these feelings for you is kind of leading you on, right? It's kind of allowing you to make assumptions about his intentions and about a potential future that some part of him might be saying is impossible for him to offer you right now. He can't offer a future or the kind of future that you deserve. With a partner or with him or with anyone, he can't offer you the kind of future that he knows that you deserve so long as he is financially dependent on this man and unable to walk away from this sugar baby, sugar daddy arrangement. So I guess you're going to have to use your words. You have to have an honest conversation with him about what his life looks like now, about how it makes you feel. And I don't think it's because you have a hang up about sex work. I don't think sex work is the issue here. I think the inability to picture what your future together might look like, with or without this sugar daddy's involvement, that's what's giving you this anxiety. And if you can address it directly with him, maybe you can pick that lock. Maybe you can figure out how to make it work in the short term with the sugar daddy in your boyfriend's life while you're, he's making a, a conscious effort or a real effort to transition out of this kind of sex work and out of this relationship with the sugar daddy, or in the moderately longer run where this relationship runs its course because mortality tables and actuarial tables are what they are. And your young boyfriend can't be in this relationship with a 70 year old sugar daddy for the rest of his life.
12: Hi, Dan and tech savvy at Risk youth and Nancy and everyone. I am a 29 year old queer woman from the Midwest and I have an odd question. I'm in an open marriage and I recently met and hooked up with a younger 24 year old gentleman he was very nice and he knew some mutual friends and he said he would be discreet so cool um the sex was good the first time the second time it was a little rougher but um whatever he stopped when I said something so I was okay the next day I ended up with like a bruised lip and the inside of my mouth was bruised super fucking awkward at the dentist's office the next day but Fine, whatever, not a big deal. I was like, if we have sex again, we'll have a conversation. So uh, come to find out, he told our mutual friend about it. And I think it was really fucked up. And I don't know. I think that because of my situation, I think discretion is fine. Also, I don't need every friend of mine knowing what fucking me is like. I think that's fair. He deflected and was like, oh, no, whatever. She would have figured it out. Literally never seen us together. It didn't make any sense. Fine, never going to fuck him again. So my question comes at the angle more of like, do I have a conversation of like, hey, you probably should get consent before you're that rough with someone again. I just feel like it would be a disservice not to say it, but also like, fuck him and he's an asshole.
0: Before I answer the question you asked, and spoiler alert, the answer to that question is yes, I I want to address another issue that your question raises. You're in an open marriage. You had sex with this dude. You have mutual friends. He mentioned the sex you had to a mutual friend. Now, he told you he would be discreet. He should have honored that. I do feel, however, that people have a right to their experiences and a right to talk about their experiences and confide in friends. So I would want to know, and I would press you on, was he gossiping? Was he talking to a mutual friend maliciously? Was it bragging? Uh, Was he swinging his dick around? Or is this someone that he confides in? Is this someone that he shares the details of his sex life with because we all got to share those details with someone. We all need confidants and I think people have a right to their confidants. I think people have a right to share the details of their sex lives with the people that they're close to, that they have that kind of relationship with. So before I throw the book at him for confiding in that mutual friend, I would want to know more about who that friend is and what role that friend plays in his life. Now it could have just been, power thing and a brag thing and it seems likely that it could have been a power thing and a brag thing he had something over you and he shared it with a mutual friend as a way of owning or even degrading you in their eyes and that's all sorts of fucked up and i think that's likely to be the case perhaps here considering that he's young and he busted out some rough sex moves without discussing them with you first and that is evidence that maybe he's not a good and decent person with your best interests at heart, that perhaps he is selfish. And the sharing with the friend, the mutual friend, came from a place of sexual selfishness. Highly likely. Again, I would want to know more about that relationship and the circumstances under which he shared that info about his contact with you. Anyway, all of that set aside. The answer to your question? Yeah, absolutely. Say something to him about the rough sex. Say that He needs to get consent in advance before he busts out those sorts of moves rather than waiting to have someone withdraw their consent after he busts them out. That's all sorts of fucked up. And that it left you with an injury, it left you with a bruised mouth, that's all sorts of fucked up. You don't want to fuck him again. You don't want to see him again. You should tell him why you don't want to fuck him again, why you don't want to see him again. And it's not just that he talked about the sex that you had after assuring you he wouldn't violated your consent in that way too, but that he engaged in rough sex without doing his screw diligence first by not checking with you about this kind of sex. Yeah, he needs to know. You need to tell him and there's nothing you're risking here because you don't want to see him again. You need to tell him that with future sex partners, he needs to have a conversation with them first about those sorts of moves, about that kind of rough sex because you just don't surprise someone With that, that that is unfair, particularly in the context of heterosexual sex, where women are at this physical disadvantage, but also this socialization disadvantage. where Women are socialized not to say no to men and not to contradict men. And so if he busts out these kinds of moves and, you know, straight during straight sex, a woman who wasn't you might have just put up with it for a lot longer and left that sexual encounter really feeling violated, really having been violated. So, Send him a nice, long, angry email or give him a call and do it on the phone if you don't trust him to
13: keep that email private. Hi, Dan, in the tech savvy at risk youth, I'm a straight male living in the northwest and the string of anti abortion laws being passed right now has put me in a, in a touchy situation. Uh, first, some background. When I was dating my ex, uh, she got pregnant and we sat down to discuss our options with the college students at the time having a hard time trying to make ends meet, and it became obvious that having a child at that point would have been incredibly difficult for everyone. It would have been a a life of privation and desperation for all of us. We decided that an abortion was the best course of action. I was with her during the procedure, holding her hand and crying with her. It was pretty traumatic for, for both of us. But My question is, how much can I discuss this experience? I'm very glad to hear women share their stories especially that it was not something that they took lightly at all, but they knew that it was the right thing to do. Uh, When I hear the stories shared, though, uh, the man involved is rarely part of the story. And if I'm going to talk about this, the woman involved would have to be part of the story. Uh, As I mentioned, she is my ex, and we currently have no relationship at all. She no longer lives in town, and people here, though, do remember her and know who she is. Am I supposed to track her down and get her permission before talking about it? I honestly am not sure what I'm supposed to do. And for what it's worth, I've been married and I have a beautiful little girl. I definitely do not want to give the impression that it's my wife who went through this.
0: You can certainly talk about the abortion your former partner had without going into any detail about who your former partner was. Just be vague and be intentionally, explicitly vague. You can say, I had a former partner, a former sex partner. Don't say former girlfriend if you only had one other serious relationship before you married. I had a sex partner. We got pregnant and she had an abortion and it was the right choice at the time for both of us. And I'm so grateful that she was able to make that choice. Period. The end. You don't have to go into any further details. If people start asking you questions, people pry. Just say for privacy's sake, for your former partner's sake, you're not going to share any of those other details. But you wanted them to know. You wanted to add to this conversation your own experience as a male and to say that men benefit from abortion rights too and from women having access to abortion care. And that's the end of the conversation. It's not the beginning of the conversation. That's the end of the conversation. That's the relevant bit that you want to get across, that abortion benefits men as well. You don't then have to go into detail about who the woman was who accessed abortion care and thereby benefited not just herself, but you, the dude in the situation. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the at-risk,
1: tech-savvy youth. It's queer woman uh 27 year old in virginia and i just wanted to call to get some some dialogue started on the topic of people who are uncomfortable having orgasms i love to make myself come like that's something that i really fucking enjoy but i have a lot of trauma and just some shit that i really need to work on and i don't like relinqu i don't feel comfortable relinquishing power to that level with my partners, male and female. And I'm just wondering if other people have been in this situation before, where, you know, like at least for me, the act of sex is like super enjoyable. Like I don't have to come to have appreciated the interaction, but I do feel shamed by some people, especially like in sexting, when they're like, oh, I'm going to make you come so hard. And then eventually I have to be like, hey, like, there's a very real chance that I'm not going to allow you to do that. Just some of your feedback, this is something that's been going on ever since I got sexually active. And it's just continuing to weigh down on me. And I wanted to open up that line of communication with you and, and see if I'm not alone, I guess.
0: I'm sure you're not the only person out there who is more comfortable even during or after partnered sex, making themselves come. There are lots of people out there who can only make themselves come. Often get questions, get calls about them from their partners who are worried and concerned that they're failing somehow because they're not making their partner come or they're not sexy enough to make their partner come. Are they truly desired by their partner if they can't make their partner come? And I'm often having to reassure people that it's fine But some people need to, you know, pull out that vibrator and they need to hold it just so. And some guys, you know, they've tried to cure themselves of their death grip syndrome and they can't. And so they rely on their hand in the same way that some women have to rely on a vibrator to come. And that's okay. And that's fine. But that impulse to want to give someone else an orgasm, not to force them to come, although there's something about I'm going to make you come that sounds a little Forceful and controlling, but that desire to get someone else off, to, to provide them with that pleasure, that comes from a, a a good place. We want people to go into partnered sex, invested in their partner's pleasure. And that's a kind of shorthand for: hey, I am invested in your pleasure. I want to make you come. I want you to get off. For you then to push back against that and say, well, this is how I come, this is how I get off. That becomes a sorting hat moment where you're telling someone one thing about you and then they're telling you everything you need to know about them. If someone says, I want to make you come and you say coming is something that I need to do for myself. And I don't always come in every sexual encounter and I don't need to, I still experience pleasure. And if that person pushes back hard and insists that they have to make you come, then they're not really invested in your pleasure because you've explained to them how you derive pleasure. They're, Ego is invested in being the kind of person who can make another person come. And that's not someone that you want to go to bed with. Sorting hat moment. They have told you that you should no longer consider them to be a p- good potential sex partner for you because it's not coming from a place of wanting you to have pleasure. It comes from a place of ego and wanting to be the person who makes pleasure happen because they're not interested in your pleasure. They're interested in pleasuring themselves. That so this is coming from a place of ego and their desires, not a desire to meet your needs, or for you to experience pleasure. But I do think that most people go into partnered sex with the expectation that their partner, this person they're going to bed with, is going to get them off, is going to do the work of getting them off. And most people go into partnered sex wanting their partner to be invested in providing them with that pleasure, in getting them off. So I don't think the people who are saying this are doing something wrong. I think people who say this and then get a little bit of feedback and then keep saying it, even if the feedback was that's something I need to do for myself, those people are doing something wrong. They're not listening. They're outing themselves as someone that you wouldn't want to have sex with, someone that you wouldn't have good sex with, and they're really also outing them as someone that no one would probably wind up having very good sex with. All right, before we get to your response calls, I'm going to read your tweets. Sinsage tweets, listening to your opening this week, Dan, and I just want to remind you that there's nothing wrong with fucking a porn star and lumping us in with a list of reasons why the president is bad is bad. Thank you very much for writing in Sin. Of course, I don't think there's anything wrong with fucking porn stars. We are pro-porn stars and pro-sex work and sex workers around here. I was just trying to call evangelicals out on their hypocrisy because until Trump came along, they thought there was something wrong. With fucking porn stars. So, thank you, Sin, for writing in and giving me an opportunity to clarify and contextualize that remark. All right, Jennifer tweets: Really did not think I was a podcast person, but approximately eight hours into Fake Dan Savage's hashtag Savage Lovecast, I am obsessed and actually excited, as I still have fifteen hundred miles more to drive. Welcome to podcast listening, Jennifer. Glad you're enjoying the show. Hope those other fifteen hundred miles went quickly. And finally. Odd Thoughts tweets at Fake Dan Savage on your last episode. You asked for a universal pronoun. How about we take a cue from Australia and England and adopt a cunt, arsehole, or geezer? Any of those perfectly describes just about every person on the planet. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Made me laugh. Don't think it's going to catch on. All right. If you want us to potentially read your tweet on a future episode of Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls.
14: Uh, hi, this is in comments to the woman who had the terrible family of origin and was lying to the partners um, early on in their relationship. So I just listened to Dan's advice, and it was pretty good. But what I was thinking she could do is just be honest about how you don't want to talk about it and that maybe you'll talk to them about it when you build a certain level of trust and comfort, something along the lines of, I'm no longer in contact with anyone in my family of origin. And I don't mean to be dramatic or cagey, but it's a very touchy subject. And so I don't want to talk about it right now, but maybe I can tell you about it sometime later. And then what you're doing is you're just being completely honest. So you're not lying. And you're also being incredibly mature about it. Um, and so if they blow up after that, or if they're like, Oh, I can't handle that," There's something that I don't know about you that early in the relationship. Well, as Dan has said before, you tell them one thing about you, and then their reaction tells you everything you need to know about them.
7: Hey, Dan, this is Chris, uh cis, straight, black guy from New York, just addressing in 633, the 41 year old straight, cis guy who was ranting about pronouns. I'm really sorry, but you're just going to have to die mad about it. Like, I like being called black. People call me African American, and just for the syllable. And it's not a big deal. You know, I just accidentally misgendered a friend that i have known for years. They corrected me. I said, I'm sorry. They forgave me. We moved on. It takes like literally two seconds to be corrected and apologize for something that's really nominal compared to the years that they might have spent enduring like abuse or, you know, staying their frustration forever, being pigeonholed into a category that they didn't feel that was right for them. You know, we as cis straight dudes really don't have any business being frustrated for stumbling over pronouns. Like we've been running the pronoun game and the sex and the gender game for years. So just kind of take the L
9: for the caller in episode 663 who was consternating about not feeling turned on at sex parties, I think you should keep going to those sex parties. Just like one-on-one sex isn't just about one thing, sexual pleasure, it can be about emotional intimacy or relaxation or fun or whatever, those sex parties aren't just about sexual pleasure for you. I'm kind of the same. I like to go to dungeon parties, but I'm not really turned on while I'm there in like a wet, I want to have sex now way. It's more of an intellectual turn-on They stimulate and fulfill part of me. The people watching is amazing. The psychology of it is fascinating. And I just feel so good to be in a room where everyone is free to be the freaks they are. So keep going and just don't worry about being turned on in the moment.
0: All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Give the gift of the Savage Lovecast. You can send the magnum version of the show as a gift to your best buddy or your worst enemy or your Republican uncles. Go to SavageLovecast.com and click the green Gift a Subscription button. Also, you should be listening to Blabbermouth every Wednesday. It's a news and review show hosted by by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eli Sanders. Rich Smith sits in, as do I, and a cast of other stranger writers all fighting about what happened over the last week. Check out Labyrinth wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Erica Moen on Twitter at Erica Moen. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. Well, I'll be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having